Now it's time for the Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, it's really a three-part podcast. The first part is about some omissions, corrections, and a couple of things that I'd like to uh, clarify. Second, I'm going to talk about the price increases that you're seeing at the uh, Disney parks. And then finally, third, I think it's going to be something interesting. I'm going to talk about the magic bands and a couple of interesting little nuggets that I think kind of caught my attention, and hopefully they'll interest you as well. So first off is a couple of corrections. Now, I said on a previous podcast that it looked like Star Wars Weekend was going to stop and not happen anymore, and this past year would have been the last Star Wars Weekend. And the rationale made a lot of sense. I got a lot of uh, interesting information from people. It, it actually kind of added up, and I've reported on it. Well, as it happens, it looks like Star Wars Weekend will continue into at least 2016, and maybe in a slightly different version, maybe a couple of additions or subtractions, a couple of different things that may be happening. You know, they may uh, tweak it a little bit, but it will continue. It might be a little bit shorter and only cover a few weekends instead of five weekends like it did this past time, but it appears as though they're going to do it anyway. Now, what seems to have changed is the simple fact that with the movie coming out this fall, and sort of the hype around the movie, and the fact that they're doing all this expansion into the new theme lands, they want to do something to continue to build the momentum. Now, it may be based more around the docking bay rather than around the stage over by Star Tours or a main stage in front of the uh, Chinese theater, but it looks like they'll be doing some things. There may not be as many celebrity guests, and they may do it a little bit more low-key, but there still will be, as far as I can tell, some celebrity sightings, some uh, various characters that you can meet, and some fun things that they'll do that are very Star Wars oriented. And it'll focus a little bit more, as far as I can tell, on some of the, on the new movie that's coming out. Now, what they do after this year, that's anybody's guess. But at least for one more year, it looks like it will continue, albeit perhaps on a smaller scale. So if you're planning on going to Star Wars Weekend, there is hope. It looks like there probably will be a new hope, and Star Wars Weekend will continue for just a little bit longer. The second correction or clarification I wanted to make was about Walt Disney One Man's Dream. Now, I had gotten some information about Walt Disney One Man's Dream and the fact that they had removed Walt Disney's desk and returned it to the Walt Disney Museum out in California. And also, they were changing the movie that's uh, shown in Walt Disney One Man's Dream to be more of a promotional film rather than the uh, Walt Disney story. And I found both of those pieces of information interesting, and the fact that they were expanding Toy Story Land out seemed to indicate that they would be changing Walt Disney One Man's Dream and maybe moving it to somewhere else, maybe uh, tweaking it in some way, something. Well, as it turns out, from some sources that I've been able to contact, they're not planning on closing One Man's Dream at this time. Now, with the expansion of Toy Story Land being at least two years out, probably not going to start any expansion until 2017, perhaps 2018, it looks like Walt Disney One Man's Dream is safe, for now anyway, in its current location. Now, they'll adjust it a little bit and bring in some new displays to replace out the desk, 
that they've taken away because that was a very large-scale display, and they'll put some other things in that area. And they'll do some other things to continue to have Walt Disney's presence felt at Disney's Hollywood Studios, and I think that's terrific. Now, again, it could change again in the future, and they may decide to move it or change it or move it to somewhere else. I don't know, but for the moment, it will stay exactly where it is in the Hollywood Studios and be Walt Disney One Man's Dream with a slightly different video now, I do understand that they're working on a new movie to replace the movie that was in there, and they'll have a different Walt Disney kind of story, perhaps with a slightly different slant on it than they've had before. If you think about the different Walt Disney movies that you've heard about and different things that they put out, the promotional stuff, sometimes they try to change the image of Walt just a little bit. This is the image of Walt sort of as Michael Eisner wanted him to be portrayed, with a lot of reality in it, but I think they're trying to bring Walt Disney back into focus a little bit differently and change the way he's viewed. So that's how I see that changing. So for now, Walt Disney One Man's Dream is not going anywhere. So those are my housekeeping items. Just a couple of quick things there just to kind of remind you that, you know, sometimes I'm wrong. I get facts from people like, look, I get information from people who are cast members, from people who go to the parks all the time, from people that I know, even from some websites and different places that I trust. And sometimes that information is incorrect. And sometimes it changes a little bit. Sometimes it's a change in philosophy. Disney is very receptive to feedback from its fans, especially when it comes to very specific things like this, that they're willing to kind of rethink it. If fans say, hey, Star Wars Weekend is a great thing and we love it, Disney is willing to kind of change its thinking a little bit and sometimes bring back those things or not discontinue them in this case. So we'll see what it looks like as it gets closer, but it certainly appears that as far as Star Wars Weekend goes, we'll know more about it as we get into the January-February time frame as they start planning up exactly what they're going to be doing and letting us know all the details of what's going to happen this year. And now moving on and talking about ticket prices. Well, we saw a pretty significant ticket increase, and there was some big changes to the way the ticketing works, particularly with annual passes. You know, Disney passed the $100 a day mark on tickets uh, back in the earlier part of this year, and now they're increasing a lot of ticket prices. I've read a lot about this. I've seen people's opinions. I've heard people say things like, this isn't what Walt would do, those types of things. Now, let me just back up for a second before I even get into this conversation. You know, entertainment dollars, the cost of things keeps going up. You think about the cost of a concert or a sporting event or going to the theater or a theme park. All of those things continue to go up in price by a significant margin where every year your salary doesn't go up by that same margin. So the cost of going to these different events continues to increase and eat a larger portion of your disposable income. And that's just the nature of the beast. And, it, and I believe at some point we'll find that saturation point where it's too high. But for now, Disney will continue to increase prices until they find that saturation point. And in perspective, just remember that if you think about the cost of a concert or a sporting event or whatever, they tend to cost over $100 for that event. So you can go and see a sporting event say a professional football game, since it's football season, and that may cost you well over $100 for basically four hours of football. Essentially, for the same price, you can go in and visit a Disney theme park for that same amount of money. The Disney theme park, you get 12 hours of entertainment for the day, and you always know that you're going to come out relatively happy. For a sporting event, you never know how you're going to come out feeling happy or not happy. If your team loses, you're less likely to be happy, that's for sure. So give it some thought as you think about ticket prices relative to what your entertainment dollars are spent on and how you like to spend your time. Now, a little trip back in history. When Walt Disney first opened his Disneyland park, he wanted a place where he could go with his daughters and have some fun. So he had the admission fee that he charged that was just to get through the gates. And that was, you know, somewhere on the order of a buck. 
and you could go in and enjoy all of the amenities and some of the free things that they had there and kind of take advantage of them and just take them in. There was something kind of nice about the charm of it that just for a small amount of money, you could go and spend a day and just wander around in his magical land. And then what they had was these ticket books. So for each one of the attractions or shows you wanted to see, you had to use a ticket. Now, the tickets were all labeled A through E, A being the lowest price ticket, and it was around a dime, and E being the really good attractions, and those cost about 85 cents. So for a dime, you, you could go and ride the trolley up Main Street, for example. You could ride the carousel. For the B ticket, for about a quarter, you could go into the Main Street Cinema or go on the uh, Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. For the C ticket, those were like a lot of the things that you would see over in Fantasyland, like the Mad Tea Party and Dumbo and Peter Pan. And that ticket was about 40 cents to get. For 70 cents, you could go and use the D ticket. You could ride the People Mover or the Skyway or go to the Flight to the Moon. Or Mission to Mars when it became that. And the highest price ticket was the E-Ticket, and it was about 85 cents. And, f and for an E-Ticket, you could ride the Haunted Mansion or the Pirates of the Caribbean and so forth. So when you'd go to the parks, you would get a book of tickets, and it would include the admission ticket plus a group of A through E tickets, and you could pick and choose what you wanted to do. So the pack of tickets was a little bit lower than buying each one individually, but then as you wanted to ride other attractions, you would go to a ticket booth and actually buy a ticket you would buy an A ticket or an E ticket or whatever and spend the amount of money that was uh, face value of the ticket. And then you would go and ride those attractions. So in a sense, it's kind of like the old days of the carnival where you had all these different carnival rides and you paid for each one of the rides individually. Really good idea. And it worked out very well. And I think Walt had in mind that he was going to let people come into the park and enjoy it for a low cost. And then what you did beyond that and how many attractions and shows you wanted to see were, would depend on how many tickets you wanted to buy. So for a relatively low cost, you could go and enjoy a day at Disneyland. And when they opened Disney World, it was the same basic pricing structure. Nothing really changed there. You would go in and get this book of tickets and then be able to go see different things. So everyone that went in the park kind of followed the same pattern. After Walt's death, Disney started thinking about how they could change the pricing structure of the tickets and change the way people entered the parks. So at some point, they came up with this idea to actually have a day ticket. Now, until about 1978 or 79, the only people that could get a day ticket that was an unlimited attraction were cast members and some family events that they had. And when they'd do some of these salutes to local companies, they would bring them in and give them basically a day pass that allowed them to have unlimited admission to any of these attractions. So that price point would be set, and they would do that. In about 78 or 79, they started introducing that day ticket to regular guests. And you would buy a day ticket, and you would go in, and you would spend the whole day, and you could ride as many attractions as you wanted to. Now, you would buy that book of tickets originally for, let's say, $5, and it would include the A through E tickets. They went through and figured out how many tickets they sold on average and how many, how many were used at each one of the attractions. They could see the throughput, and they could figure out how many tickets they had sold of each type. So they could take the number of people that went through the general turnstiles versus the number of people that rode the Haunted Mansion and figure out how many e-tickets were used and so forth. And they could do the math, and they could figure it all out. So they came up with a price point that made them just a little bit more money on the day ticket than it would be if you bought the individual tickets. So if you bought the, the coupon book, and it was $5, and then you went back to the ticket windows and you spent another, let's say, 3 or $4, maybe that's $9, for a premium of $10, you could ride as many attractions as you wanted to. Very clever. And that became the day ticket. Now, Walt had never introduced this idea, and as I understand it, had never been interested in this idea. He always wanted people to use each one individually and go to each thing individually and kind of experience them as unique. So 
it was a sort of a different model and a different way of looking at how you would spend your money to go see different attractions at the parks. Flash forward a couple of more years, and Disney figured out that they could actually add a multi-day passport and allow people to, to buy the tickets and come in for multi-days. And there was no expiration on them. So you would buy a two-day, a three-day, or a four-day pass, and you, if you were vacationing there, you would, might use all four days in one shot. But if you were a local, you might buy the four-day pass and use them over the course of a summer, let's say. And, you know, the price point went up a little bit. Instead of being $10 per day, maybe it was $30 for the three-day ticket, $35, you know, something like that, where you would go in and you would be able to use that. And then, of course, the price kept going up a little bit each time they'd uh, do a renewal thing and whatever. At some point in the late 1980s, they decided, how about if we introduced an annual pass? Instead of just being a couple of days pass, somebody could buy it and they could come in as many days as they wanted to. And again, they did the math and figured out how many days people would come in the parks. They did some surveys. They figured out how many times people bought the passes and so forth. And they figured out what the price point would be for an annual pass that would make sense. And that would allow anybody to come in the parks any days they wanted to. And then somewhere shortly after that, they figured out, you know what? We could also offer a special pass. Then they figured out they could take people out of the parks at certain times of year, offer a slightly lower price point, and still get people to come in and buy these annual passes. And they had the seasonal annual passes, which excluded high peak times like summers and Christmas time and some of spring break right around Easter. And so they introduced those tickets, and those sold pretty well. Disneyland, of course, followed suit did the same things, had the same sort of uh, setup, and was uh, pricing tickets similarly and so forth. And then a few years ago, they started expanding on the idea, and they came up with a premium annual pass that allowed you to go to both parks with no blackout dates. The problem is Disney was a victim of its own success. Because people enjoyed it so much, people, or you could say guests, were actually taking more advantage of it than Disney anticipated. So the crowds at the park became larger, and it became problematic because, of course, Disney is in the business of making money at the end of the day. And they're trying to sell vacation club properties, and they're trying to sell uh, experiences and once-in-a-lifetime things and add-ons and packages. And more people were buying the annual passes and using them for more days than Disney anticipated. So they had to kind of raise the price a little bit to kind of dwindle out a few people and, and get a little bit more of a premium on that. And then you think about how Disney added the Fast Pass and the way they changed the, the mindset of people going into the parks, and you would go up to an attraction and wait in line for some period of time, and you might see X number of attractions. Instead, they came up with this idea for Fast Pass to get people in there and get them going to the attractions, and you could use it with your ticket, your standard admission ticket. So you didn't have to wait in line. It was kind of a clever idea, and it was a way to potentially make more money because people would be moving around and going to different places and might be out of the line and spending money, you know, buying a churro or buying a turkey leg or buying a t-shirt. It didn't matter. Disney was trying to see if they could find a way to tweak the bottom line a little bit. When it didn't quite work out that way, they changed it again a little bit to uh, kind of restrict the number of fast passes and change the methodology. And then ultimately it led to the next gen and the My Magic and the way they do the Fast Pass Plus now and the way you actually have it linked to your to your band. So it's really interesting how this all kind of worked out and Disney kind of grew into something that I don't think they were prepared for. The other problem that they're faced with is travel became much easier. You know, when the parks first opened, it was hard to get from one point to another. Flights weren't as consistent. It was harder to travel. Yes, I know the TSA and, you know, certain security things and the, the flight delays and so forth make it complicated anyway, but it's nowhere near as hard as it used to be. Now it's easy. You can buy a ticket and be on a plane and go somewhere pretty quickly. And really, people just do it on a lark. They go somewhere. 
uh, when I talked to Carl Trent uh, on my last podcast, we talked about him being in Oklahoma. He comes to Disney World more often than I do living in South Florida, where I'm just a couple of hours drive away. That just goes to show you how people take advantage of the you know relatively cheap travel and uh, just how easy it is to get across the country these days. So, you know, it kind of changed the mindset a little bit. You don't necessarily have to be a Florida resident or a California resident to buy an annual pass. There's no, there are certain types of annual passes that are only for Florida or California residents, but the rest of them are available to anybody. So Disney kind of found themselves in this little bit of a quagmire of many people buying annual passes, using them for more days than they anticipated, and really getting their value out of them. So Disney had to do something. And I think the only choice they had was to change the pricing structure and the way that they had the, uh, the annual passes set up so there's blackout dates, the many of them. I, I would argue that one of the biggest problems they had was in Southern California. At Disneyland, uh, I don't think that they ever anticipated it becoming what it is today with people buying annual passes and them having re- them reaching capacity at, at regular intervals. There are times when they reach capacity, people just come in, they have their annual pass, whether they live locally or within a couple of hour drive. People come over, they visit the park, they stay till, you know, till closing, or they just come in and see the, the uh, world of color. And those parks don't have the capacity that Walt Disney World has. Disney World has very few times that you see the park reach capacity. The Magic Kingdom reaches it infrequently, but it does reach it sometimes. None of the other parks traditionally reach their capacity at any time during the year. You know, you've got, and you've got a lot more to do and a lot more land to work with and people can go to different places. So, so the amount of space that you have available in Walt Disney World and the amount of things that people can do really changes things a lot and uh, kind of opens it up. But in Disneyland, you're more constrained by the space and the capacity and the number of people that were buying annual passes is really kind of a problem for Disney. So it comes as no great shock to me, looking at it from that, with that lens and that perspective, that that's what's happening here, and they've raised the ticket prices and they've changed the pricing structure, primarily at Disneyland. Now, you may have noticed they staged up their announcements, so Disney World got announced first with their tri- changing pricing structure. And then they came back to Disneyland and they announced it the next day, and theirs was a much higher increase, more on a par with what Disney World is. In fact, I think they said it was about a 30% increase on an annual pass at uh, Disneyland over what it was last year. That's a pretty significant increase. I'll be honest and say that the increase I saw on the type of pass I get was just a couple of dollars, really. Uh, you know, we're talking just you know, just a few dollars over the price that it was before, and they threw in parking, which I think was an interesting twist to offset some of the cost increases. They added the photo pass downloads, which I don't care about, and I think most annual pass holders would agree that they don't care about, and they included parking, which I think most annual pass holders do think is an important thing. The $12 to park or $14 or whatever it was, now it's up to 20 really does come out and it kind of washes out for me. The couple of dollar increase that they made is offset by the number of times that I'd have to park. So it's really at the same price for me next year. So I kind of find that interesting from the Disney World perspective, how that worked out, that it's kind of at that same price point where Disneyland went up significantly. And I think Disneyland, they kind of had to do that. I I really think that they really had no choice. They wanted to make it more of a premium destination and make sure that they always had capacity for people who wanted to be day guests and not always inviting Southern California people in all of the time to take park capacity. So interesting problem and challenge there, you know, because it's a fine line you dance. When you say, I want to create something that's a little bit more of a premium, and I still want to invite my Southern California guests to come into the park, And I don't want to alienate my Southern California guests, but I want to limit how much the exposure is to them so that that way I can get more other types of guests in the park. It's challenging. 
I've said for a long time that I think my magic and the whole magic band and the whole kit and caboodle of everything is coming to Disneyland soon, and I think you're going to see the complete rollout in early next year. They'll they'll be doing the same things where they limit the number of fast passes, they make everyone use the My Magic to go around and so forth, and they can track park flow so they can actually know how where people are and what their patterns are when they come in the park. So it's not just a simple I count them when they come through the turnstile and then I kind of lose them in the park. I think they really want to know something about the people that are in the park, and I think My Magic in its entirety will be coming to Disneyland in the not too distant future. Now Disney has to pay for that infrastructure upgrade to make that happen. Part of the way to do that is to increase ticket pricing so that they can get there. So, just my two cents on it. So, am I disappointed by the price increases? Of course. You know, it's it's changed from what I remember it being. Disney is a very different place, more corporate in some ways, than I remember it being when I was, you know, in high school and college, and even at the beginning of this podcast a few years ago. But it's not to say it's a bad thing. The changes have all been generally pretty positive. They've offset any expectation I might have had that might have been negative with something really, really good. They have continued to exceed my expectations every time. You set the bar a little higher, and my expectations go up a little bit. And yet, they keep meeting it. So, there's something to be said for that, and I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. Yes, I'm disappointed that the price point is going up. Yes, I'm disappointed that they're kind of changing the mix and, you know, evening the playing field for more DVC-type members rather than for us Florida residents. But I get it, and I appreciate where they're coming from, and I'm okay with it as long as they continue to up the ante and keep making better things for me. Make the value proposition good for me, and I'm happy. So that's the way I see it. It gets harder for a family of five to go, but it doesn't mean that we can't go. We just kind of have to pick and choose when we go and how we go and when we do it. And we have to spend our entertainment dollars wisely and go at times that make sense, where it's a little bit off-peak, or maybe it's during the week, or whatever else we can manage to do. So that's my take on the price increases across the board on the tickets. Now, I said that I had something else to talk about, and it's related to My Magic. And this was something that kind of caught my interest. The whole My Magic band, the whole next generation thing. Of course, it's about controlling entrance to the parks and giving out fast pass admissions and knowing where people are in the parks and doing some data mining to see what people's interests are and seeing where they go and what they do and, you know, kind of keeping using that to their advantage. It's certainly about that, but it's about so much more. The reality is... When you look at the big picture and realize that Disney has over 10 patents on the My Magic technology, you realize that they're in a much bigger sea, and they're doing a lot bigger expeditions than it seems like with just theme park operations. It's nice that they have all this stuff set up, and you can use it, and you can get into your room, and you can charge to your account, and you can do all these things, but Disney has bigger, grander plans. And I was reading through a financial magazine, And I was reading about all these different wearable devices, whether it's the Apple Watch or the Samsung Watch or the Google device or whatever it is. All of these different devices want to connect your life. Disney is actually there piloting how to connect your life and make it a seamless sort of environment for you to be able to do everything. You want to pre-order your food so it's delivered to you? Done. You want to uh, have these attractions that you can go to and, and get to them and have a certain time that you go there? Done. You want to be able to get into the park? Done. Get into your hotel room? Done. Want to be able to charge to a credit card? Done. All of these things in a connected life are already there. Directions on the phone? Done. Everything is right there in the My Magic application with your phone and with any other device you want. You could walk up to a kiosk and you can see a lot of things, so they haven't turned all of it on yet. My belief is Disney is the proving ground for this particular piece of technology. 
Now, one other interesting little nugget here. When people cut open their magic band and take out all of the components that are in there, there are some specific components in there. There's a, an RFID chip, there's an antenna, there's a 3-volt battery, and there's one other device in there that kind of eludes most people. It's a little tiny chip. It's a semiconductor that actually connects all this stuff together and makes it work. And that, that particular chip is actually produced by the Nordic Semiconductor Company out of uh, Oslo, Norway. This company has pioneered and perfected the technology that allows for this connected life. Disney is using the chip as a part of the magic band to make this connected life happen. As it turns out, if you do a little research, all of the other wearable devices have a chip from this company in them. So, there's some connection here where Disney is piloting this out and making it work and ironing out some of the kinks to make a connected life that then all of these other devices can use and really leverage to make something amazing. Because Disney owns a lot of the patents on this technology and some of the inter interplay between the different systems, they stand to make some money on it, no question. But there's also that piece about how they connect up all these different devices. So in theory, you don't have to have a magic band. You could walk in with an Apple Watch or a Google Watch or one of the other devices that, that are a wearable device and still have the same functionality if you link it up to your Disney account. Mind blown. It threw me for a loop when I finally recognized what the connection was here. Disney's on the forefront of technology and innovation, and they're doing something really clever and creative that could, in fact, change the entire world in the way we use a connected world. Look, I think most people are afraid of the whole big brother nature of what happens when, you're, when you have these wearable devices and you're walking around and people post ads to you or they can track you and what your sales are like and so forth. I think there's a lot of trepidation from people around that. But remember back a couple of years ago when Disney first announced the Magic Band, there was that same sort of mindset. I don't want Disney knowing everything I'm doing. I don't, know what, I don't want them to know exactly where I am in the park, what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to give a fingerprint, and I don't want to do this. And, and yet park attendance keeps going up. People don't seem to mind. And that in this connected world we're living in, if you strike that balance between what's acceptable and what's creepy, you can really win in the marketplace. And I think Disney has found that level, or close to it. They're finding that level and everything kind of works out. And I think it all kind of fits together in a neat little package that Disney is prototyping this for a more connected society. Yeah, some people will opt out, no question. Some people won't be able to afford the technology. That's true too. But I think the technology allows us to take that next advancement. You don't necessarily need to have a phone with you all the time. You could be using your watch or your wearable device to do a lot of the same functions and maybe the phone becomes an extension of that rather than the other way around. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. It's just sort of a fascinating thing that Disney is actually at the forefront of all of this. It just, it kind of threw me for a loop. I, like I said, it blew me away when I first realized what was going on there. It's so much more than just theme park admission. I've always known that, but when that realization came to me, I just wanted to share it with you because it's something that's just so fascinating. The technology of it all kind of fits together and it's really an amazing thing and Disney has done some very clever things to bring it all together. You know, now we can move on in society and do something really amazing because Disney is taking this artificial environment that they have that's Disney World, Disneyland, and whatever other parks they're going to apply it to, and they can expand that thought process out to other places and share that technology with other companies to take that those learnings and build on a more connected society that's completely different without being creepy, right? So they have that, that sort of balance that they've struck. So there you go. That's my take on the whole mag my magic. That's my take on the magic band. I'm sure I'll learn more over time. Some of you may have feedback about that and want to share something with me that you've learned. But I think it's really amazing that this has all come together. 
And I just felt like it was kind of important to kind of talk about it because it fits back into the whole ticket price increase, right? You want to keep capturing information. And where's that point where people aren't interested anymore, right? Where, where does the creep factor and the, the connected factor all come apart? I guess we haven't reached that point yet, but we may at some point in the future. Well, there you go. That's my podcast for this time. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 